0: Good morning, everyone. Happy Mother's Day. uh, I'm also sensitive to the fact there were many years when we were trying to have kids and were unable. And uh, Mother's Day was a little bit painful. It was kind of a reminder of what we didn't have. And uh, so when Mother's Day comes around every year, I want to make sure that we recognize and appreciate moms in our church but also realize that there are a lot of women in this church who don't have kids who are just as deserving of a thank you because of their nurturing care as the moms in our church. So I just want to extend that broadly and thank you for the impact that you make in the life of this church. So grateful for each and every one of you. Uh, This morning we're going to begin a new series uh, looking at the book of Acts, which I'm really, really excited about. This is going to be good stuff. If you'll remember, uh, and this has been a few months ago now, but I laid out kind of where we were going this year. And when I did that, I told you that we're going to actually kind of take Acts in chunks. And the first chunk is Acts 1 through 7, where it talks about the birth of the early church beginning in Jerusalem. And after we finish that section of Acts, we're going to transition over to the book of James. The reason we're doing that is because the letter that James writes Is written to the people we'll learn about in Acts 1 through 7. It's the church that began in Jerusalem. In fact, a lot of scholars believe that Luke uh, uses information given to him by James for Acts 1 through 7 to put that history together. So I hope that by pairing these with each other, it kind of makes both of them come to life a little bit more. And as we kind of get started this morning, I want to start by giving you a, a big picture. Look at the book of Acts. Now, Acts, essentially, as many of you know, is a sequel to the gospel of Luke, right? We know that because as as Luke begins his gospel, listen to what he says in Luke chapter 1. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting to me as well. Having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Now go over to Acts chapter 1 and listen to how he continues. He says, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So clearly Luke is trying to give an account, as he says, in orderly fashion, of how the, the church, how how the church fits into the, the overall plan of God. How this new movement that came out of Judaism came to incorporate now Gentiles into the people of God along with the Jews. A new movement, as we will see, that is rooted in some very ancient promises, and a particular promise that is ultimately fulfilled through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because as we will see, Jesus is the one who establishes the church. Jesus is the one who commissions the church. And ultimately, Jesus is the one who, by his word, then empowers the church. Acts is the evidence of God's sovereign work in bringing about his kingdom plan. It is the testimony of God's power through the victorious message of the gospel. We might say that it is the sovereign work of the Father through the saving work of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the victorious message of the gospel: the sovereign work of the Father, through the saving work of the Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's kind of the big picture story of Acts, this sequel to the Gospel of Luke. But I want us to kind of go down to the ground level now and kind of consider what was happening within the culture when this was actually written. Because I think when we stop and think about it, we're going to see some very clear similarities between what was happening during the time of the early church and what is happening in our world today. As you go back to the early church, at that time in history, it was filled with all kinds of division. There was this this complex mix of of cultures and traditions. You had this Hellenistic influence from the Greeks and and then the Romans kind of partnered in there with this Jewish practice. The dominant culture of the Romans had many different gods for different things and uh, situations in, in life. And then you had the Jews who swore allegiance to only one God. But in that culture, the Jews were constantly pressured to be more inclusive, to look outside of this one God and consider all these others that might exist. But even as they tried to stay set apart within the Jewish faith, there were divisions as well. If you went to the men's retreat this year, you heard Steve Dirks talk about those four main divisions within Judaism. If the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, and each of them kind of interacted with the culture in a unique way. Some completely withdrew from the culture like the Essenes. They lived out in the desert away from anything that was happening in the real world. You had the Sadducees who were definitely more inclined to live as a part of the world. They kind of blended in with society. And then you had the Zealots. (laughs) They were always opposed to what was happening in the dominant culture, many times violently. And that's what was happening during that time of the early church. That was the the culture, and the environment. And if you think about it, I think many of those attributes could be said about our world today. I mean, after all, isn't our world filled with division? We have political division, racial division, division within religion and different worldviews in our own culture. It's a, a complex mix of all these different viewpoints and ideas and opinions. And I think a lot like Rome... We have plenty of false gods that exist in our own culture. Now, we don't have a temple to Diana like they did where you saw temple prostitution, which was common in that culture. But we do have an internet that is pervasive with pornography. We do have human trafficking. We may not have this god named Zeus, but we all know that The one who holds the power is the one who has all the money. (laughs) It sounds very Zeus-like if you think about what's happening within our culture. But even within our own religion, within Christianity, there's no less than 25 different denominations, mainline denominations. And within that, there's sections of denominations within denominations. Some blend into society. Some withdraw altogether, form their own societies, and some are zealously opposed to what is happening in our world today. But much like we see with the times of the Jews, everybody is being pressured to be more inclusive, to to consider all the options and let everyone do what's right in their own eyes. So you tell me, is the book of Acts relevant in our world today? I think absolutely it is relevant in our world today. In fact, I'm going to ask you to join with me in praying as we go through this study together because I am praying that God will use this study in Acts to be a wake-up call for His church, in particular, His church here at Melanie Park. I'm asking the Lord to remind us of our mission. I'm asking the Lord to stir in our hearts as his disciples, just as he stirred in the hearts of his disciples during this time in the early church. Because here's the deal. God's kingdom plan is still underway. God's sovereign control is still effective. The gospel is still the message of salvation. And the church The church is still the primary means by which God intends for that gospel message to go to the uttermost parts of the world. I'm praying and I'm asking you to pray with me that there would be an awakening in the hearts of God's people that we will be reminded of the mission and the commission and the power that has been given in the life of the church to carry out what God ultimately calls us to be as his people. Because I think we need to be restored to the original intent of why we're here to begin with. And I'm going to ask you to pray with me for that to happen in the life of this church as we look through this uh, passage this morning, but in our whole study together over the next several weeks. So let's pray together this morning. God, as we come before you this morning, we sincerely do want you to stir in our hearts to awaken our minds, to remind us of the mission, the commission, the power of your spirit at work in your people to carry the message of the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. Help us understand, what does that look like in Lubbock, Texas? What does it look like at Melanie Park Church? What does it look like in the Sapisa home? What does it look like in my life? And Lord, as we walk through this book together, would you answer those questions? Would you stir in our hearts? Lord, I pray just as mightily as you did in the hearts of your disciples during this time. Lord, help us to understand who we are as your people for the praise and glory of your name. It's in your name that we ask this. Amen. All right, turn to Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, and let's get started on this bad boy. This is going to be good. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, The first account I oppose Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing Proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, as I've already mentioned, uh, Acts is the sequel to the gospel of Luke. In both situations, we see as Luke is writing to a man named Theophilus. We really don't know a whole lot about Theophilus, but but praise God for Theophilus, right? Because the words that Luke speaks to this friend, this letter that he writes to him, is of tremendous value to us. And I love how he kind of begins this Uh, account by saying all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. I think when he says that, he's suggesting that, and he's not finished yet. Jesus began. This is just the beginning. There are still things that are yet to come. And Acts becomes an account of the continued work of Christ. It's not the end of the story of Christ. It's the continued work work of Christ, because he's just beginning, and there are still more things yet to come. And Luke is making it clear that this is, in fact, the risen Christ. It's not an imposter. It's not somebody different. This is, in fact, the risen Christ that we have witnessed with our very own eyes. He goes on and explains that the risen Christ has made an appearance for over 40 days, Giving very various convincing proofs, and we know from what Paul later writes to the Corinthians that he appeared to over five hundred people. It says in Corinthians chapter fifteen, verse three, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was that he raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to to Cephas or Peter and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time. Most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, some have died. Then he appeared to to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, it was uh, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So when Paul is, is speaking these words, when he says many of these are still alive essentially what he's saying is look it's 500 people if you don't want to take my word for it go ask them because they saw it too because over that 40 days Jesus made it very clear that he is in fact the risen Christ and there is a multitude of people who could give testimony to that fact Jesus wasn't just making appearances It says that he was teaching about the kingdom of God. Now, this could mean any variety of things that Jesus was teaching, but one of the things that the the Scripture tells us is, is that it defines the kingdom of God this way. It says it is the righteousness, the peace, and the joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Lord through the Holy Spirit. I think at least in part, those were some of the things that Jesus was speaking about when he was talking about the kingdom. a Righteousness, not of our own, derived from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. A righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. That's what Jesus was talking about. And not only that, he was talking about the peace of God the peace of God that, that passes all understanding, that guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's what he was talking about. He was talking about the joy of the Lord, the joy of the Lord through the presence of the Spirit, which is the presence of God in the life of his people. That's where joy is found. That's what Jesus was talking about, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit those are kingdom realities made available to God's people and I think as Jesus is teaching with with each and every conversation there's an anticipating uh, a growing anticipation there's an expectation of of things that are to come and even Jesus is speaking to it he's talking about things that are yet to come and I think if we were one of the disciples we would be no different than they are (laughs) They're ready to get this thing going. Jesus, we like what we're hearing. Let's do this kingdom thing right now. Bring it on. Let's do the kingdom. We want more of what you're talking about. I think it's important to understand that that Jesus says, but you have to wait. Go to Jerusalem and wait. And he reminds them, this is not new information. You've actually heard this before. And then he brings up something that actually uh, is spoken of by John the Baptist. When he says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming, speaking of Jesus, he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and the fire. Jesus is saying, listen, what John promised is about to happen not many days from now. I think the disciples were beside themselves excited. But I also think they were a little bit confused because they weren't real sure exactly what he was about to do. And I don't know about you, but I would have loved to have been on the conversations during this time while they waited in Jerusalem and just began to try to hash out, what do you think is going to happen next? One of the disciples might say, well, I think he's going to... And the other says, no, I, I think he might... But apparently, there was enough of this conversation going on between the disciples that there was consensus. Because when Jesus did rejoin them, they only had one question for him. Out of all the things that they might have discussed, it boiled down to one single question. And look at what that question is back in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. And so... When they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, we hear that, and it might sound a little self-serving, a little different, not, not maybe what we would come up if we were boiling it down to one single question. It probably doesn't make much sense to us in our modern times, but I tell you right now, it made complete sense to the disciples during that time. Because the Bible is filled with promises for Israel from beginning to end. And they were wanting to know, is this the time that you are going to fulfill those promises that we know you have made to God's people Israel? Let me just give you a couple examples. Here's one in Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 15. It says, As the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north, and from all the countries where he had banished them. For I will restore them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. There's this expectation all throughout the Old Testament based on a promise that God made to Abraham about a land, a a seed, and a blessing. Promises that have yet to be fulfilled. And they're asking, is this the time? That expectation carries all the way over into the New Testament. We know that because in Luke's Gospel, when the father of John the Baptist is prophesying, listen to what he says in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 67. And it says, And his father, John's father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. And he has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets and from old, Salvation from your enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy toward our fathers and remember His holy covenant. The oath which He swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we be delivered from the hand of our enemies. That we might serve Him without fear. That's the expectation of God's people. Because that's the promise throughout the whole testimony of Scripture. So here they are under the oppressive uh, uh, nature of the Romans. They, they, they live in fear. They live in oppression, and they're, they're looking at Jesus, who they now know as the risen Christ to be the promised Messiah. And so it's a very legitimate question for the ask. So is this the time? Is this the time when you're going to restore the land like you promised in Jeremiah? Is this the, the time that you're going to sprom- you're going to, so, to fulfill the promises that you made to Abraham? Is this the time? I think it's really an important question because it helps us understand God's plan for Israel. I had a seminary professor uh, when I was in school that told us that understanding God's plan for Israel, understanding end times in general, but specifically Israel's part. And God's ultimate plan is determined back in Genesis chapter 15 when God made a promise to Abraham. And he says when you come against that promise in, in Genesis chapter 15, you have a decision to make. He says it's like a fork in the road. And in his terms, he said you're going to take a path and you're either going to go to literalville or you're going to go to figurative land. But you've got to choose one or two at this point. In, in other words, either God made a literal promise to a literal people the Jews, a promise of a a land, a seed, and a blessing, a promise that is repeated all throughout Scripture and at this moment has yet to be completely fulfilled. That was either a literal promise or it was a figurative promise to those who behave like God's people. And since Israel uh, failed to fulfill that role, then he cast them aside. The question the disciples ask is important. Because it tells us if God is finished with Israel. Does God substitute the church for Israel in his kingdom plan? It is a valid question when they asked, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Look at Jesus' response in verse 7. And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times. Or the epics, which the Father has fixed by His own authority. (laughs) Jesus did not say that Israel would not be restored. In fact, I think He indicates that they will. But He makes it clear they will be restored in God's timing. The restoration of Israel is determined by the authority of God. What that tells me is that it was a literal promise to a literal people that will literally be fulfilled. And as we go through our study of Acts, that will become increasingly explicit. And so what that means for us is that what is about to happen, what God is going to do through the work of the church is not a new plan because somehow the old plan had failed. This is not plan B. This is still plan A. I think the prophet Isaiah made it very clear as to what the purpose of God's people is intended to be. In Isaiah chapter, did I mark this one? No, I didn't. I've got to find it. Isaiah chapter 49. Listen to what he writes, and as he does, he's describing the purpose of God's people Israel, and you tell me if this purpose has changed. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. And he says, Is it too small of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? We'll also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. God's original plan is still in place, He's empowering a worldwide mission beginning in Jerusalem with Jewish disciples who will then incorporate the message of the gospel to include gentiles like me and you and Luke the one who writes the book of Acts look at verse 8 but when he shall receive but you shall receive power when the holy spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Jesus promises two things to his Jewish disciples. He says, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. He's taking the opportunity here to expand their view from God's plan with Israel to God's plan for the world and their part in that plan a plan that ultimately centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. They are called to be witnesses for Christ, continuing the message of Isaiah to be a light to the nations because the witness for Christ is the message of the gospel, which is the work of salvation to the uttermost parts of the world. You see, the disciples are the right people to begin this message. Because they're the ones who spent the most time with Jesus. They sat under His teaching. They witnessed His miracles. They were there at the cross. They were there at the tomb. They are the ones having this final conversation with the risen Christ Himself. But right alongside, this expectation and experience probably was an incredible challenge. If you're one of the disciples and you're hearing this for the first time, You've got to be thinking, oh, wow, where do you begin? <laughs> what do you say? A, a, a worldwide mission? Wow. Well, that's where the promise of the power comes in. Because the mission of God depends upon the power of God at work among the people of God, ultimately for the glory of God. I shared this passage with several people this week because this is one that just sticks out in my mind in passages like this. It's in Exodus chapter 33, verse 15. This is when Moses is speaking to the people who will then enter into the promised land. And as you look at the life of Moses, you know that he's tried to do many things up until this point on his own, taking matters into his own hands. And he's learned because he says in verse 15, Then Moses said to him, God, if your presence does not go with us, Do not lead us from here. In other words, Lord, if you're not in it, we're not moving. Because we are dependent upon your power to accomplish your purpose in the world. It is the power of God at work in the people of God that brings about the mission of God, ultimately for the glory of God. And what we read in Acts 8 then becomes the outline of every single thing that follows. It's really the picture of what's going to happen in the following chapters. Verses one, chapters 1 through 7 is what happens in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 11 is what happens in Judea and Samaria. And then at verse 12, the gospel goes viral. And it goes to the uttermost parts of the world. Look at verse 9. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. And a cloud received him out of their sight. As they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus whom you've, who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Because we all know this is the ascension of Christ. And I think there's some really important features as to what's going on here and. One of the things that I think is really important that we sometimes pass right by is the presence of this cloud. And I want you to stop and think about the significance of the presence of a cloud in the story of Scripture. Think about the cloud that filled the Holy of Holies during the tabernacle. What was that all about? Think about the cloud that led the Israelites by day in the wilderness. What was that all about? See, this is not some cumulus nimbus. (laughs) This is not that kind of cloud. This is the glory of God being displayed in what, what could only be described as a cloud. But I can assure you it's not exactly what we see when we look out into the sky. It was far greater than that. It was the presence of God's glory made visible to human eyes. That was the cloud we see this cloud of God's glory lifting Jesus into the heavens. And that's significant because the glory of God represents the authority of God, who is now exalting Jesus to the right hand of God. That's what we see happening in this moment. And it says there that the disciples are just gazing intently. You and I know they're staring at the sky aren't they their mouths are open they're oh my goodness what just happened i think probably in this moment they've got a thousand questions going through their mind much like they did before like oh now what do we do where do we begin what do we say how does this work i mean we've never done anything without jesus leading and guiding and directing us and and now he's gone So now what do we do? Hmm. I think probably in that moment, all that built up excitement and anticipation instantly turned to fear. And then all of a sudden it says that in the midst of that fear and confusion and and questions, two men appeared. Now, I don't know about you, that doesn't help my fears. Okay? Two guys out of nowhere. And it tells us that they're wearing white robes. And I don't, I don't want you to think of that in terms of uh, especially clean clothing, okay? Again, this is not clean clothing like that wasn't just a cloud. These are men whose appearance really surpasses the English language. The, the Greek word being used here to describe the, the color white to us has less to do with color and more to do with quality. The Greek word describes the color of light, what color is that? I have no idea. They say it's white because it's the best word we can come up with. But what we need to understand, it was unlike anything you could put words to. And so it wasn't like all of a sudden two guys showed up in white clothes that looked like they belonged with everyone else. That's not what happened. These two guys showed up in something of such great brightness that they were far different than anyone else there in that crowd. They knew, I believe in that instant, that these were angels these were supernatural beings sent by God, different than anyone else, and probably much like the two men in white robes at the tomb. And I think there's some humor in what they say, right? Why are you guys staring up into the sky? You know, I'm, I'm really surprised that at this point in the Scripture, it doesn't record Peter saying, uh, because Jesus just got lifted up in a cloud, that's why? I mean, that would be like something Peter would say, right? But then what they go on to say is is really important for us. Because yes, Jesus went up into heaven in a cloud. Yes, He is exalted at the right hand of God. Yes, He has divine authority and sovereign control over all creation. Yes, that's true. But here's what's important. He's not done yet. He's not done yet. In the same way, that you saw him leave, he will return. What we learn as the story unfolds is that when Jesus returns, he returns in judgment. We live right now in what the Bible calls the last days. It's the last days because it's the, the window of time between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ for the purpose of judgment upon the living and the dead. These are the last days, and that's why the mission of the church given to the disciples and, in effect, given to us is so vitally important. We have been ki- commissioned to carry out a life-saving message of hope. And hear me on this. Each day we live is one day closer to Christ's promised return. I don't know when it is, but I do know it's been set. And each day we live is one day closer to Christ's promised return. So I think it would be appropriate as we finish up to think about, okay, well then how does this impact us? How does what happened on that day during the life of the disciples at the ascension of Christ, how does that apply to you and I today. And I want us to think of it in terms of an awakening. An awakening. Because up until this point, the disciples were guessing. (laughs) They were confused. They were trying to figure out, okay, what are we supposed to do from here? And at this moment in time, they in a sense had an awakening because Jesus made it very clear. You are to be my witnesses. You receive power. You will begin in Jerusalem you will extend out into Judea and Samaria, and you will take this message of the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. They had an awakening. And as we will see through the story of Acts, they take the mission to heart. If you doubt the fact that there was an awakening right now, you just wait and see what's about to take place. And I think if you look throughout the history of the Christian faith, you see moments of similar awakening awakenings. One of the ones that comes to my mind is the Reformation. I think there was an awakening there. I think Luther was awakened to the truth of God in the Word of God and how it applies to the people of God. One of the things he wrote was this. He says, we need to pledge ourselves anew to the cause of Christ. We must capture the spirit of the early church. Wherever the early Christians went, they made a triumphant witness for Christ whether on the village streets or in the city jails, they daringly proclaimed the good news of the gospel. Why? Because Luther had an awakening. He understood afresh, anew the calling of the church given to the disciples that applies equally as much to you and I. Sometime later in the 18th century, there was a man by the name of George Whitfield, somebody that I'm reading a biography on right now. Fascinating story of how God worked in this man's life. And what was interesting was he had an awakening. And the Lord really spoke to him about taking that message of the gospel. And one of the things that was unique about George Whitfield is he spoke to massive audiences. Some estimate that people gathered in the realm of 30,000. Now in our times today we think, well that's not very much. Well, but remember, this is before microphones and Uh, voices that could be magnified so can you imagine standing out in the park with 30,000 people and everybody hearing your voice okay that's what was happening with George Whitfield and people would show up in one situation in Edinburgh they began to grove to a crowd at 5 a.m. in the morning because they wanted to hear what this man had to say and it was interesting on one particular occasion there was a man by the name of David Hume. Now, David Hume was a very famous philosopher and skeptic during the time of Whitfield. And so one of the people that were there that day saw Hume and said, I didn't know you believed in the gospel. And he says, I don't. But that man does. And I want to know what he has to say. Why? Because he'd been awakened. Whitfield had been awakened. And so I'm just wondering, what would it look like If there was an awakening in us, what would it look like? And I'm not talking about some change in our society. I'm talking about an awakening in the church among God's people. Where the mission of God comes alive in the heart of the people of God. An awakening. Because here's the key. You can go back in our passage this week and you can imagine what took place on that day. And you can see yourself standing there with the disciples. Because everything that Jesus spoke to his disciples, he has promised to you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be his witnesses. To the uttermost parts of the world. Jesus is returning. And you and I have work to do. Because we have been given a commission. But I want you to hear me on this. Before we can go tell anyone about the kingdom. And the promises of God. Those kingdom realities need to be very real in our own life. Before we can tell about joy, and righteousness, and peace, we need to experience joy and righteousness and peace in our hearts, in our marriages, in our families. Because part of telling people about the kingdom is the evidence that you've been changed by it. So that they can look at you, even if they don't believe in the gospel, and say, he has. Because that's a different person. There's something that's happened in his life. There is a change that has taken place that I cannot explain. And it's a good thing. That's an awakening. And so here's what I want us to do to finish up this morning. I just want us to take some time to pray that the Lord might bring an awakening in the hearts of His people and that we would see that begin to happen in the life of this church. And one of the things that I would ask us to pray for, first of all, is that we, as His people, begin to experience the promises that He made about what the kingdom is all about. That we would understand a righteousness not of our own, derived from the law, but a righteousness that comes through faith. And that we begin to see the power of God working a righteous work in the life of His people so that there is redemption put on display. And that with that, there's a peace. A peace that passes all understanding so that that doesn't mean life is easy. But it means that even in the midst of the storm, there is peace in the presence of God in the life of his people. And that there's joy. Even in the midst of heartache. Knowing that the promises of God are eternal. And that they will be fulfilled. And that he will return. And that it will be made new. And those promises are true. And there's joy in that reality. And so two things. Pray for God's kingdom to be real in the lives of His people right here in this church. And that this church would be awakened to the mission of God to carry it to the uttermost parts of the world which might begin with your neighbor next door. Two things. Okay. Now I want to ask for two volunteers. Two volunteers will pray for... One of those two things. Who's my first volunteer? You moved your hand, Tim. Any volunteers? I'm not going to force anyone. Godfrey? Thank you. I was hoping you'd be one of those two. You would pray for the people of God to experience kingdom realities in their life. And one more volunteer. Susan McCartney, would you just pray that there would be an awakening in the church of God that extends beyond this body, but we would certainly experience it here. Would you pray for that, please? So, Godfrey and Susan, would you stand up and pray loudly so that people can hear you, okay? So, go ahead and stand up. And then I'll close this when y'all are done. You'll stand. Let me close this in prayer. <clears throat> God, we are your people. And we have been called to see the power of God and work within the people of God to carry out the mission of God to the glory of God. Lord, would you awaken in us a new and renewed understanding of what we are intended to be as that people. Lord, would you stir within the lives of this church so that we would see evidences of redemption in marriages, in families, in relationships. So that even an unbelieving world would look upon the people in this church and say, I may not believe what they do, but they do. Because their lives are different. And that it would be attractive. It would be appealing in ways that Demonstrate your goodness at work in the lives of your people. Lord, help us to gain anew the understanding of what it means to be sent out as your witnesses by your power to accomplish your purpose in the world, knowing that each day we live is one day closer to your promised return. So awaken us, Lord. Awaken us to be the people that you've intended us to be, in greater and greater measure. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we pray. Amen. Have a great day.